Hashtag Pistons Podcast. We're back in the saddle. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about programming notes uh, in terms of what the schedule may or may not look like for the podcast going forward. Uh, also, in general, if you didn't know that I am back in the saddle to sort of talk through that. But I'll do all that at the end so that if you don't care about such things, you can just turn it off when that time comes. So we're going to just go into uh, some kind of broader thoughts. I know that I'm recording this on the afternoon. In the afternoon, I'm recording it. It's a little bit before 4 o'clock on Friday. So basically, there's only a few couple hours before a game tonight, so I don't want to get too much into some of the game specifics. But yeah, so we're not going to worry about that. So, got a few sort of bigger picture things to look at. First thing I think it's pretty obvious is Cade Cunningham. I think probably worth worth talking about him. Uh, you know, the first two games he played were really pretty disastrously bad, quite frankly. And I think that it's perfectly fair to use that word, disastrous. Because, you know, I saw a lot of people, they said, you know, we shouldn't be worried and it's fine, and, you know, they, like, singled out some plays and said, look, we're, we're seeing some good stuff here, and we're seeing some good stuff there. And I feel almost like those people were, uh, what's the word? I think they were almost trying too hard, because it is true that you should, nobody should have been, like, panicking or that worried or anything, and, like, it's going to be fine. And in an effort to quash people who were sick talking that way, they're like, look, there's actually these good things. There's no other way to put it. He looked awful in those first two games, by and large. Uh, the The reason why you shouldn't have been concerned about it is not because he didn't actually look that bad. It's because it's two games and definitely playing on a bad wheel. And that's one thing to address a sec is that with regards to his ankle, um, I have heard, I heard on decent authority that his ankle is still not 100%, and he had been lobbying really hard to play, even from opening night and even all the way back in preseason. And that's one of the reasons why it seemed like the Pistons as a team kind of kept moving the goalposts almost on when he was coming back, is because it was he, he personally was really pushing to start playing. He did not want to miss any games. He wanted to get out there and play. And it was the team kind of going, look, man, let's let's relax. We want to make sure you're right. You know, we don't need you to uh, – we're okay with you missing a few games at the start of the season if that's what it takes to get you healthy and get you right. Uh, but Cade was definitely pushing to get in. And so with that in mind, I actually wouldn't be shocked if, like, those first couple of games that if it were purely up to the team, the te- that he might not have played yet. And – it's possible that at that point, you know, the doctors were basically like, look, he's not going to hurt it worse by playing on it. He's just not all the way right. And they basically relented at that point. Because once again, I know for a fact he, he pushed hard to play even on opening night. So I'm totally behind the idea that he just had a bad wheel. And so he looked bad. But that should be the reason you use it is that first off, it's just two games and he clearly had a bad wheel and that's why I looked bad. I, I didn't see the purpose in people trying to trying to act like it wasn't that bad. I Okay, I guess that's not true. I kind of get the purpose of trying to push back against the people that said that, that were going, this guy's a bust already, you know, the 97 won the ticket types. But 
that's not I don't need to worry about that because I don't have that large of a reach anyway, so I'm not going to change that many people's minds. I'm going to give it to you straight. I'm going to trust you guys to be able to take it and say that, yeah, it was bad, but there's no reason to panic yet. And then the good news is that then uh, last night or whenever, you, I guess, you know, a lot of people won't be listening to this the day I recorded, so possibly a couple nights ago, whatever. The game against the Sixers, we put up 18 points, 10 rebounds, 4 assists, I think. I believe it was 4 assists. Uh, he, you know, he still couldn't shoot from 3. It would be really nice if in this Brooklyn game he could get a few more threes to drop. He did hit one three, but you started to really see it. That was more in the realm of the stats may not be great. There's some ugly plays, but there's a lot to like here. Um, because, you know, I know everybody's everybody's talked about it, so I don't need to harp on too much. But like that play where he got matched up with uh, Matisse Thibel, and he just straight up shook him and then went to the hoop and finished with Joel Embiid there, Embiid didn't really even bother to challenge it that much, but still, that's the type of play that it's like, oh. And remember, Matisse Thibel is not just a good defender. That guy's genuinely, that is the best perimeter defender in the world right now. Bar none. I genuinely believe that, and I'm not alone in that. That's not some radical take. He's the best defender in the world. And the fact that Cade just straight up shook him like that, that's the type of thing that it's like, okay, that's why you were draft. That's why he's the number one pick. And there were a lot of plays like that. He got to the line a ton, which is a great, great sign, because you know if you're going to be a top level offensive option, it's very difficult to be an efficient scorer if you can't get to the line. And the fact that he's already getting to the line is super encouraging on that front. So yeah, he looked good in that game against the Sixers. Obviously, we need the three point shot to fall. Uh, and on the three-point shot, one thing is, I'm, he's not going to be this bad, obviously. But it is worth noting that the shot is an area for at least a little bit of concern, or perhaps more accurately, it's a question mark. Because, you know, so first off is that the simple fact is, they're all, they've already been talking about how they are potentially making some tweaks to his shooting form. Never a great sign when a guy shows up and immediately they talk about let's tweak your shooting form a bit. You know that's just that's just never that's never a good thing. But perhaps larger than that is that even though he shot really well in his year at Oklahoma State, really well, he was an elite shooter in his one college season. Um, oftentimes shooting was listed as a weakness for him before that, and it's not like he couldn't shoot at all, but it was kind of seen as a weak spot for him. And, you know, he shot really well over the entire season at Oklahoma State. A lot of those shots were high-difficulty shots. So I believe that he genuinely improved it noticeably. But, you know, not to bring on some painful memories for people, but remember that Stanley Johnson shot well in his one year at Arizona. And then he showed up and it was like, his shooting form doesn't really work at the NBA level, and he couldn't shoot at all. So I'm not saying Kate Cunningham is going to end up like Stanley Johnson where he just never learns to shoot at all. I don't believe that at all. But the question is where he ends up as a shooter is still an open question. It is not a given that he's going to end up being a really high-level shooter. Um, it I, It's entirely possible that he ends up being just an okay shooter or just a pretty good shooter, which is fine. It's not the end of the world, but it will have an impact on exactly how effective he will be as an offensive player going forward because 
if he can reach like I'm trying to think who would be the sort of like lowest level shooter that's considered like a genuine elite. So let's just say Kyle Lowry, for instance, where he's not. You know, I don't think anyone would have ever really put him in league with the basket with the NBA's absolute top tier of shooters. But he's a really good. He's a knockdown shooter when uh, he's shooting from spot up looks, and he's fully capable of hitting tough pull up jumpers when he needs to, when he when he's asked to, right? At least after he arrived in Toronto. Before that, he was not a good shooter, obviously, but. If he can get to that level, that's such a weapon, especially for a guy who has his size, his ability to get into the paint, and his vision. So it just—it is a question. I would not just assume that he's going to, you know, one of these games he's going to start hitting shots and then he's going to just shoot like forty percent for the rest of the season. I think there's a decent chance he shoots like thirty-five percent the rest of the season. I wouldn't be shocked if he shot forty percent the rest of the season because once again, in his one season in college, he was an elite level shooter. At Oklahoma State, but just it is something to watch. Uh, defensively, I will say I like what I've seen. He has made a lot of kind of typical rookie mistakes, uh, things like just getting lost on rotations, not good closeouts, that type of stuff. But you have also seen both a commitment to effort on that end of the floor, which is good to see because obviously a significant part of defense is just want. You know, desire, effort. It goes a long way on defense. And also just how effective his size can be on that end. Uh, there's been a few different times that he's clearly bothered people with his size. And that's great to see. So, yeah, I think that's probably that's probably enough about Cade for now. Um, another thing that I want to touch on today, and today's going to be short. Uh, two other things I want to touch on, actually. So the first one is Sadiq Bey. I'm not sure what is going on with him exactly, but I will say that I think that it does go beyond just he's not hitting threes because of the fact that in the last few games we've seen him start to we've seen him start to uh, he's almost started to look hesitant to shoot it, which is kind of shocking because in his rookie season he was not shy at all. He, that dude hit, did not meet a single three-pointer that he didn't like in his rookie season. And he started to look almost hesitant. And I wonder... And once again, he was so confident all the time as a rookie from the moment he showed up that I don't want to just... I'm, I'm hesitant to say that it's that, well, he's shooting so poorly, so he's l- losing some confidence. But... Hard to explain otherwise what's going on with him. I mean, he's shooting just 27% from deep now, which is brutal. And I'll also say that with Sadiq Bey, I would not put a lot of stock into this whole Sadiq Bey self-creator thing. Um, It's nice that he's shown some signs there, but I don't think that's really a long-term thing I would be getting too excited about, at least not right now. Um, when he's done it, it's mostly been against pretty poor defenders, which, like, for instance, he did it quite a bit against Chicago to open the season up. And most of what he did was against DeMar DeRozan, who, I mean, DeMar's not a total scrub defensively, but he's not very good. And also just the simple fact that, you know, no defenses are not really expecting him to do that. 
So I would not read a lot into it beyond that. I don't think that's a thing that's going to be a big thing going forward as a with him as a self-creator. He, I guess, here's maybe a better way to put it. There's a lot of examples, and unfortunately, uh, us Pistons fans have examples that are pretty close to home of wing players who are mostly shooters but expand their games, quote-unquote, and start to show other parts in terms of some self-creation that really is just a reality of it's not a very good team and has limited offensive options. Like, remember that there was a stretch where KCP was running a lot of pick-and-rolls with Andre Drummond. And it was like, oh, KCP's, he might be a real pick-and-roll ball handler. And it actually, you know, as his career has gone on, it's like, no, he's not really one at all. He's just, you know, he can do it. Like, the, maybe here's the best way to put it. Most NBA players are capable of doing more than what they, just what they do on the floor. The problem is they're not that effective at it. And my guess would be that if it becomes a more regular thing, uh, so that defenses kind of know it and whatnot, I do not think that Sadiq Bay will maintain a meaningful effectiveness. What it is nice to see, though, is that if he at least has that in his arsenal to a degree, is, you know, realistically, the Pistons should be viewing their young guys through the lens of what do they look like or what do they potentially look like on a theoretical Pistons contending team however many years down the road you think that it's going to be before the Pistons might be in real contention. And so Sadiq Bey seems to have, assuming he does find his shot back, uh, he has a pretty clear role. Exactly how many minutes he's playing depends a little bit on the roster construction, but very clear role as a guy who is a really good shooter. And, you know, even if not like some lockdown defender, he knows what he's doing on defense. He's got good size. He's going to play hard. Uh, you know, exactly the sort of player that any good team loves to have. Uh, whether he would be in the starting lineup or, like, one of the first guys off the bench, hard to say, but at least a, like, 20-plus minute per game, even on a team with a really deep wing, um, really deep wing rotation. He's playing at least in the mid, at least, like, 20-plus minutes per night, really effective. And the thing is, in that type of a role, when you think about it, in the playoffs, and we've seen this many times before in the playoffs, is the ability to punish teams that have bad defenders on the floor can make a difference. So once again, just to use an example here, let's just say three years from now, the Pistons are in a theoretical playoff series against the Atlanta Hawks. Trey Young's got to defend somebody. The Hawks are going to have to hide Trey Young on somebody. So it's nice to see that you know, even if it's not like a real thing, he's that Sadiq Bey is not suddenly going to be that he's not going to transform into some real creator who's an isolation scorer or anything like that. At the very least, the way he's he seems to be taking advantage of his size in such in a way that in a the, on a theoretical contend, contending team, if you are in a playoff series against Trey Young, if the Hawks try to hide Trey Young on Sadiq Bey, Sadiq Bey is going to be comfortable just going down onto the block and just bullying him and that matters because you know being able to take advantage of those types of matchups it matters it, it makes a difference so I'm not saying that Sadiq Bay's 
progression as a self-creator is nothing or it's worthless. I just wouldn't read into it in terms of like, oh man, he's taking the leap. It's way too early for that. And the other thing about Sadiq that I want to mention is with a three-point shooting, okay? So he's going to shoot better than this, obviously, almost by sheer dumb luck. He's not going to shoot this badly all season. But when you look at last season, okay? So last season he shot 38% from a three. League average last season was almost 37 and Sadiq was shooting a lot. I'm not trying to like tear down what he did as a rookie, but it is just worth noting that it's it's that 38% number stands out. But around the league, three-point shooting was up last season. And when you also take into account the fact that you know, the Pistons were so bad that Teams were not going to go out of their way, really, to do a lot of scheming. And what they did do, they would have done for Jeremy Grant when he was playing, at least. And there is a chance that Sadiq basically is not an elite-level shooter. There's a chance that he's just a pretty good shooter. And that makes a big difference for a guy like that. Because if if he can be an elite-level shooter, right? Like, there's a level of off-ball three-point shooters where you can become a huge difference maker, right? Guys like, uh, I mean, Clay Thompson would be the best example, but he's he's so good that I think it'd be it's a disservice to Clay Thompson to lump him in here. But, like, guys like Kyle Korver, uh, J.J. Redick, um, I'm trying to, I'm drawing a blank at this exact moment. But, you know, guys like that who are that level of dangerous as a shooter they can really be an absolute weapon. And, you know, a poor man's version of this would be like Wayne Ellington, who's been on the Pistons the last few years, although he's a really poor man's version of that. But, you know, there's a level of shooter you can get to where even if you are pretty much purely a spot-up or, you know, you're not creating for yourself, you can still be a huge weapon in the offense. And after last season, I think myself and a lot of other people were thinking there's a chance that Sadiq Bey could become one of those dudes. I think that we do need to be honest about the fact with the way he's shooting right now, when you consider the fact that three-point shooting was up across the league last year, that there is a chance that Sadiq Bey might actually just be an okay shooter, which would severely lower his stock. Uh, Yeah, so that said, my guess is he's going to be fine. I'm not stressing about it. It's just something to keep in mind there. Um, Last thing, let's see. We're not even quite to 20 minutes yet, so we can we can definitely get one last thing in here. Is uh, is Isaiah Stewart, who has been brought up quite a bit, talked about quite a bit by different people. Um, I really got all in on Isaiah Stewart last season. If you followed me on Twitter, you knew this. It is a little bit of a problem, though, because a lot of what I started to get excited about was when He started to take some threes, and he hit them at a pretty decent rate. This season, he has taken very few threes. He's averaging just over one attempt a game, and he's not hit many at all. In fact, I believe in total, Isaiah Stewart, yeah, he's one of six from three on the year. Okay, that's what it is. So why does it think 
That's not more than one a game. Basketball reference. Basketball reference has it listed as he's taking 1.1 three-pointer a game. But in eight games, he's taken six. So, not totally sure how that math works out there, Mr. Basketball Reference. But, yeah, so he's not shooting them. And it's not like he's even hit the few number that he's taken. If he's not going to figure that out, he is kind of a problem. And here's kind of the... So, there's an archetype that he clearly fits into as of now. As a sort of balls-to-the-wall, high-energy player. Those types of guys oftentimes look way better off the bench in limited minutes than than they do as starters in heavy minutes. There's a couple of reasons for this. First off is that, objectively put, especially in today's NBA, you can't play like that all the time. You will get gassed. And by the way, Isaiah Stewart has looked pretty gassed in a couple of different games this season. Just if you play that way all the time, you'll get killed. Second off, if you play a super physical style like that, if you're playing in limited minutes, you can follow the hell out of people all the time. And the thing to remember with guys who follow a lot, they commit more than that, but they don't call them all. So you can play really physical. You can play in the gray areas a lot so that you're a pain in the ass to go against and you're a pain in the ass to score on. And if you pick up a few ticky-tack fouls because you're playing in that gray area all the time, it doesn't matter. You're only playing 18 minutes. But in a lot of times, it's challenging for guys who are in that mold to transition into being a heavy minutes starting level player because they have to learn not to play in those gray areas as much because you can't afford to just take fouls anymore. And you have to learn how to pick your spots a little bit, right? You can't just go after every single offensive rebound because you'll use up all of your energy, right? So and it should be noted here with Isaiah Stewart, he's done a really good job of not fouling too much, which is really good. He's not done as good of a job sort of figuring out how to conserve his energy or anything. And there is an easy excuse for this. And I know that a lot of you probably thought about this even right now before you even, before I even got to this point, is he did have an injury this summer. So it's entirely plausible that he's not all the way in shape, at least not in the type of shape that he wants to be. And I totally buy that. Even with that in mind, you can't play balls to the wall all the time, bad ankle or, you know, out of shape or not, you're going to get tired. There is the bigger issue here, though, that would have nothing to do with him being a little bit out of shape, is defensively, he's okay. I think a lot of people are pretty significantly overvaluing his defense, um, and I think he's going to continue to be challenged on that end. Because I think a lot more teams are going to look to make him defend on the perimeter and in space. And he's got decent feet. He's got decent hands. I don't think it's going to be a disaster area. But I don't think he's a guy who's you want getting switched out onto the perimeter or playing out on the, out on the perimeter a ton. And on the inside, he gets some blocks, which are good. He gets blocks in particular. He gets blocks without fouling, which is really good. But he's not that tall. And as far okay, he's really tall. Obviously, if he walked by me, I'd be like, "Damn!" But <laughs> as far as an NBA center goes, he's not that tall. He is strong, but he's not like super big and wide, and he's not some elite level leaper. And so, for him to go for, he gets blocked shots, but he's not a huge deterrent at the rim, right? Uh, if you want to go with like the classic verticality, basically contesting shots all the time, he's not as good at that, and. The problem is, 
that's not really a skill thing. That's not a he'll get better as he learns thing. That's a these are his physical limitations thing. And within that, I question... I'm a little bit dubious about where he ends up defensively, basically, is how good can he really get over time? Because, you know, he's solid for how young he is right now. And at this point, he really stands out because his backup is Kelly Olenek, who is a tire fire on defense. He's such a bad defender that he's often fallen out of rotations on teams he's been on before because he's so bad on defense. So with that in mind, he looks, you know, it's a pretty stark contrast. And he's obviously, Isaiah Stewart is not a bad defender, clearly. But I do wonder what his ceiling is going to be, especially as it has already looked like this year that teams are going to make him defend away from the hoop more. Because the only thing he really has is that he's clearly very strong. But if you have to defend away from the hoop, it's going to hurt you. Not hurt you, but you can't use that strength as much. And then the, but he's fine defensively though. The big problem is offensively. And it's basically like, what do you do at a plus level? And when I say a plus level is, what are things you can do that we can't basically pull some dude out of the G League or something like that who can do? So he's not, once again, he's not that big. He's not an elite like leaper, jumper. So he's not very good as a roll threat. He's not shooting, so he's not a stretch five. And, you know, this is something that's not a shock because it's largely learned. But it's not like he's tossing around great passes. He's not a super effective screener because, once again, he's not that big as far as NBA big men go. Uh, He's not that big. And in particular, he's not that wide. He's got really, he's really strong, but, like, he doesn't have a big butt, you know. I mean, I think that's... I think there's really no other way to put it. Like you think about a lot of the really good screen setters, they got they got they got big booties, and Stu doesn't really. He's not that just really wide guy that's just a pain to get around. And you know he can get better at that. Like being an effective screener is something that really takes time to learn because to be a good screen setter, you need to play in the gray area quite a bit where you set screens that are not strictly legal. But you get away with it. So it takes time to learn that. So he can get better at that. And like a lot of the sort of big man passing stuff that you like your big men to be able to do. Like, you know, really become really good at dribble handoffs. Uh, see backdoor cutters occasionally. Um, that type of stuff. That stuff that is very, very, something that got a lot of guys add to their games. Uh, just as an example, um, you know, obviously Andre Drummond is a positive example of this. Where when he showed up in the league, he was not a ball skills guy at all and and he and by the time he he left the pistons he was an awesome screen guy he set really great screens he set really clever screens and he was really good in dribble handoff situations he was smart about it he was um clever about the way he got the ball to guys he was just he's really good at it and that was purely developed so it's obviously something that you can learn to do but he doesn't have it right now and the other thing is that I don't know that becoming a really good screen setter necessarily, that's not enough to make you a plus on offense if you're not a good roller and if you're not able to pop for jumpers. 
And those jumpers don't even need to be three-pointers. I wouldn't mind if they started him around the free-throw area even right now because he needs to bring something on the offensive end. And he really doesn't right now. And I know that he had the one play the other night where he, like, crossed up Joel Embiid and went in for a dunk. You know, it's not like he can't ever do anything. But offensively, he's like a replacement level. He's a replacement level player on offense. You could pull any number of dudes out of the G League who could do what he does offensively. And it's also worth mentioning on the offensive end is that he's not off, he's not rebounding on the offensive side like he like he did last season. So last season his offensive rebounding percentage, which I guess in case you didn't know, um, rebounding percentage is the best way to lo- look at rebounding because it it adjusts for pace and how many missed shots. So. The percentage of rebounds you get while you're on the floor, that's rebounding percentage. Last year's offensive rebounding percentage was 12%, which is pretty good. It's not like a super elite level, but it is very good. He's all the way down to 8% this year, which is not even, it's barely best on the team. Like that's barely higher than Sadiq Bay, And it's, it's, it's a, it's a good offense. It, you know, he's still a good offensive rebounder, but he's not been clashing the glass, crashing the glass the same way. Now on the other side, it's actually, this is another part of the issue with him defensively is he's not a very good defensive rebounder, like, at all. Uh, and once again, a big part of that is because he's not he's not super wide. He's not this really big body, so he's not that great at uh, he's not that great at boxing guys out necessarily. He's effective when he can get into some space and he can move guys with his strength and his you know sheer tenacity, but. He's not. He's not someone who can really effectively box people out all the time, and that that lowers his potential defensively. So, like, just as a and on his overall, it's like okay. So his defensive rebounding percentage right now is twenty four percent, which like that's not that wouldn't even be in the top twenty in the NBA. Guys like Tobias Harris, Kyle Kuzma, Al Horford, those are guys who have better defensive rebounding percentages than he does. And as a total rebounding percentage, which is including offensive and defensive, same deal. He's not even in the top 20 in the league, which is not great. So he's kind of a meh defensive rebounder. He's a pretty good offensive rebounder, but not the way he was last season. And... It's just like there's he's a he's a replacement level player on offense right now. You could pull a center out of the G League and they could do what Isaiah Stewart does on the offensive end right now. And the problem is, other than the shot, you know, becoming a plus shooter, I sh- kind of struggle to see how he's going to develop in such a way to change that. Like he, unless he's going to suddenly grow, which and he's only twenty, maybe he'll add a few inches. Unless something like that's going to happen, I don't know how he becomes a more effective roller. Uh, he's just not the sort of giant athlete that is a particularly dangerous role man. And he may learn to become a better passer and screen setter. In fact, not even may. I would expect him to. But I don't know that he's going to become the type of high-level passer that he's really a big plus on the offensive end in that degree. He might, you know, at the. it's not like he's shown... A really, you know, like a really, really high level offensive IQ where he sees things that you don't expect guys to see 
So, yeah, I just I still really like Isaiah Stewart. He's obviously a guy that you're okay with having on your team, but if he's not going to be a shooter, I don't know how he can... I'm not sure that he can survive as a starter. And it'd be unfortunate, and obviously he's 20 years old. There's plenty of time for him to develop this. But I will say, perhaps the best way to say it is, I think that the coaching staff should be pushing him to take jumpers more. Even if they're not three-pointers. Even if it's just free throw line. Because he is providing nothing on the offensive end. He's a replacement level player on the offensive end. And just a pretty good defender. And so, yeah. Basically, he's not a good... he's He's a solid defender for his age. He's nowhere near good enough defensively to be an absolute zero on offense. And it's not likely that he's going to become that good defensively because of his physical limitations. So, yeah, hopefully he learns to shoot threes. We're just over a half hour. I think that's a pretty good time for right now. So we're going to call it quits there. Um, I'm going to quick touch on the sword programming notes. So if you don't care about that type of thing uh, and you only care about what I have to say about the hoops, then you can stop listening here. So programming note. Um, I get that this is kind of a weird time for a podcast to come out. I had been kind of stressing about finding the right time to release the first podcast of me coming back. And I, that resulted in me not releasing one yet. So I just said, I'm going to not worry about releasing at the perfect time or anything like that. I'm going to just record one and put it out tonight because I have some time. Um, going forward, i got to kind of work out what the best option is going to be. Um, so basically what my schedule is, I get up for work a little bit before 4 in the morning, which, yes, it's very early. So that means that I I have enough you know awakeness that, for the games to start at 7 or 7.30, I can get my recap usually written by about 10, and I can be in bed by about 10. I can live with that. That's, you know, it's not as much sleep as you would like to have, but you can live with that. I can't stay up long enough to record a podcast on top of that. And, uh, you know, even if I did, I'd be so tired that it'd be, it'd be a miserable podcast. And... That's really the best time to record is at night right after the game is done. It's like when it was me and Koo, and I would guess most people know us, but if you don't, Koo is now the host of the Lockdown Pistons podcast, uh, you know, moving up in the world. And so if you're wondering where he is, that's where he is. You should be listening to him. Um, so, yeah, so that's what we usually did when we recorded. It would be game gets done, we'd hop on and we'd, just talk about the game right then. That's not practical here, and obviously getting up that early, uh, I'm, I don't want to like get up even earlier than that and record in the morning. So I'm not totally sure how it's going to work out um, just because of the schedule I have, but we are going to get some podcasts out as well. And just in case you hadn't seen, I am all the way back in. Um, I'm writing putting my previews and recaps back on Reddit, just like old times. And um, my primary site now is I'm writing through Substack. Uh, So, yeah, so you can find my stuff, find it on Reddit, interact with me there. You can also subscribe to my Substack. My Substack is free to subscribe to. So go ahead, and then you'll never miss a post. You'll get stuff right into your email. And also, through Substack, if you want to support my work, you can get a paid subscription. Um, The paid option is $5 a month, and it's $5 a month because that's as low as Substack will allow you to set it. At least, that's what it seemed to me. I tried to put it lower. It wouldn't let me. So if if it's possible to put it lower, let let me know. (laughs) Seemed to me like it was 5 And I read a thing somewhere else that 5 is as low as you're allowed to, as Substack will let you put it. 
So, yeah. So if you want to support the work, you can put that. You can do that. Take a paid option. And uh, if you, um, once again, though, everything's going to be free. Uh, if enough people start to go with the paid option, that it might be worth it. I might start doing some sort of a premium content, but I don't know for sure what it would take for me to do that. But yeah, so f- at the very least, like the recaps and the previews and stuff, that's that's going to stay free. I'm not going to put that behind a paywall. I've got no interest in it. Um, the whole reason I do it is because I like to see what people have to say about the game. I like to talk to people about the game. I don't want to limit the number of people who can see it. So yeah, that's that. So follow me on Twitter at Joe underscore truck. Read me on Substack at uh, www.joetruck.substack. If you want to support my work, you can get a paid subscription. Otherwise, subscribe for free. Get everything directly in your email. Never miss a post. And yeah, glad to be back on the horse here. And we're going to be back more. Uh, Hopefully, tonight goes well against the Brooklyn Nets. So go Pistons.